All right, on the podcast today, all the way from Philadelphia, we have Tim from ARS. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. So for the folks that don't know who you are, why don't you give us a little bit of background? All right. So uh, Tim Anderson, I'm a uh, fireman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm also the owner of Anderson Rescue Solutions, ARS. Um, ARS has been around, G come up on five years here. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's five years. Yeah, five years. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, lose track sometimes. Um, it goes fast. It does go fast. It does go fast. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, we design um, equipment for uh, firefighting, uh, tech rescue, things like that, some tactical stuff as well. Um, in Philly, I'm in, uh, in a special operations company, one of the, the three that serve the city. So we do fire, a lot of fire duty as well as tech rescue hazmat. Um, a uh, rope confined space instructor for a while and uh, also on uh, Pennsylvania USAR Task Force One. It's one of the 28 FEMA USAR task forces down here in the U.S. Um, right on. I've been, some, yeah, I've got some questions for you on that. Uh, Philly Fire, how long have you been there? Uh, it'll be um, 12 years, it'll be 13 this winter. Lucky so, 13, right in 2020. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, it's all uh, all crashing down together here at the same time. Right on. And now you say you belong with one of the special ops units. Um, for the viewers out there, like heavy rescue style unit, squad, what are we looking at? Right. So Philly has uh, currently one heavy rescue and two squads. Um, the way it's set up, the heavy rescues in the middle, the two squads, one's at the north, one's in the south end, I'm in the, the north end. Um, and our squads are, uh, best way to describe it would be a low budget heavy rescue because we're, we're a rescue engine. So for those who don't know what that means, we, we are an engine with water on it that covers a first due area for all the usual uh, first due fires and other nonsense. Um, but then we also cover a, a third of the city for, um, uh, well, really half of the city for tech rescues or major fires. So our we run a two-truck system in the squads. So we have our, our frontline piece, which is a typical rescue engine with a whole bunch of compartmentation. And then we have a second truck that looks like a big um, UPS or FedEx delivery truck uh, that has some of our weirder stuff on it for, for tech rescue and hazmat. Um, so we have the same training as the, the heavy rescue. Uh, I know... Some cities have a, a, you know, the rescue has more training in the squads. We kind of supplement them. In Philly, uh, it was more when they, when they added, the, the rescue was the original tech rescue company that was sort of reestablished in the early 90s. And after 9-11, they wanted to add on to that capability. Um, and instead of adding more heavy rescues, kind of the, the cheapest way to do it was to add squads. That way you're not adding any manpower per se because you're not having to stand up a new unit. So you, they took existing engine companies trained up a bunch of personnel and converted them to squad companies. Um, so we have the full, the full tech rescue capability um, on top of our, our uh, regular engine, engine duty. So it makes it a, a, um, a new place to work. I mean, there's, you, we, none of us know what we're doing any day in the fire service, but, but uh, it's kind of magnified on a, on a squad company because you're, you could be doing craziness in the first do or craziness citywide, who knows? So um, keeps it busy. That's the joys of the job, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The uncertainty is uh, part of the party. So it's funny. I mean, a bit of a tangent. As I said, I live a ways from where I work. Um, 
and I, a lot of times I fly, especially in the winter, passes start getting mm. snow in them. Okay. And yeah, I was on shift extension at a fire, went off of there, got dropped by the battalion back at the hall, showered, because we were clearing units, and they're like, you might as well go, because they knew I had a flight. Got to the airport, got on a plane, flew home. By the time you land, it's like, oh, yeah, they're just clearing up the last of the units from that car, right? But it's just like you say, it's crazy. Yeah, it never ends. Never ends. So but that's the fun. I wouldn't want to work anywhere else. No, exactly. So a couple of questions just generically on rescue before we get into ARS specifically. Where do you think rescue is coming from? Like what, what influences in Philly and with ARS and with you specifically, did you see in the past that, uh, you know, kind of got you to where you are today in regards to rescue? Wow. That's a loaded question there. Um, <laughs> all right, let me give you, let's start way back at, at Tim Anderson's start of tech rescue. So, I first got into rope on my seventh birthday when my grandmother got me a, I don't know, 25, 30 foot piece of like braided rope from the hardware store just for kicks because what seven year old boy doesn't want a piece of rope. And my father made the either good or bad decision. You can, you can decide which of, of buying me a, an oval non-locking carabiner from the army Navy store and telling me how they used to do a couple spine wraps and repel when he was in the army. And that was it. I mean, I was, uh, I don't know why I'm still alive, to be perfectly honest, but I was rappelling out of trees at seven just with a belt and clipping this oval carabiner to it. Um, and uh, I gradually upgraded my rappelling gear and got an actual climbing harness and found a 50-foot scrap climbing rope somewhere to show and, and got a figure eight and just uh, slowly went up from there. Um, got into rock climbing pretty young. I was probably 10 or 12. Um, all doing it the wrong way. I just went to REI and bought books and read them cover to cover multiple times, never had any formal instruction. So, uh, so I got into rope that way. Um, just, I had a kind of a lived on some, uh, had a big backyard. So just lots of trees. I was climbing constantly as a kid and, and, uh, then, um, got into fire service at 16, uh, kind of interesting backstory there. So my volunteer firehouse, I could join at 16 uh, as a junior firefighter or whatever. Um, and this right after I turned 16, that spring, I'd had uh, major hip surgery unexpectedly for an injury. Not fall repelling, right? No, no, no. It was uh, <laughs> just some stupid bone thing that wasn't anybody's fault. But, um, but so I had a six month period where I was completely off and I was just so excited to finally put my uh, application in. And I got cleared to full activity on September 10th, 2001. Wow. Um, so that was kind of September 11th was going to be the day I put my application in. Uh, obviously things got a little squirrely. Um, so it was a little delayed, but, but I kind of, I got into the fire service literally within a few weeks of 9-11. Uh, and so that heavily kind of shaped my um, fire service folklore for, you know, I, my, my opening year of the fire service was just reading stories of, of FDNY rescue guys and, and uh, you know, kind of coming of age in that um, right after that, that earth shattering event there. But uh, so I, I fell in love with the fire service. I was in school. I was interested in, in, um, sort of poli sci or national relations, went to college, have a, a uh, four-year degree in history that I use every day at the firehouse. And, uh, 
Um, but by the end of my freshman year of college, I was taking fire tests uh, in various big cities in the, the Northeast. Um, I just fell in love with it and knew that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so, so that's my backstory. So me coming into, into the fire service and rescue came from a climbing background which I'm super happy about, which I'm sure we'll get into, but I came from skinny ropes, two big ropes instead of the other way around, um, which I, I credit that for a lot of, a lot of things uh, in a good way. Um, where Tech Rescue is going, particularly rope. So it's going a lot of places. I feel like it's, you know, as we talked like the last 10 years or so, once the, the ID came out, we had, okay, now all of a sudden we don't have to, you know, do a load releasing hitch. We can go straight from a lower to a raise, but oops, we have all this friction. So let's, let's make the MPD happen. Um, and then now we've got the same thing and then said, okay, well, this thing's big. So whoever puts an MPD and an ID together and makes them, makes them be friends, will probably win the race. And so now the clutch is out, which is a you know, great, great piece of kit. Um, I'm sure Petzl's somewhere working on their version, but uh, anyway, uh, so things have changed rapidly, and it seems like once once a rescue team gets used to one piece of kit, the next one is out, um, and uh, so that makes it tough, I think, for rescue teams. You know, especially it's one thing if you're if you're dealing with a whole bunch of rope nerds um, who are constantly into this stuff, but it makes it challenging for teams who either have a, a long host responsibilities or if it's a, you know, an industrial team that gets to train quarterly or something, it's, it's, it's going to be tough to change things up. Um, with that though, I, I think, I think we're going to start working smaller. I mean, that, that's probably been, that's kind of the hot topic right now. And uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse there. So, you know, ropes are getting smaller. The equipment that goes with them is getting smaller. Um, one concern I have with, with, with rope rescue in general is with all the technology that we've developed, uh, I don't want to say we, but that has been developed, um, I feel like there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a feeling that we have to use it. Um, and we we've, we've might have overcomplicated some of our systems, might have overcomplicated how we operate. Uh, and I'm concerned about the mission creep there of getting the patient to EMS care. Um, my example for this, and I'm going to make a lot of people mad with what I'm about to say, but um, the, uh, the Vortex is phenomenal. I love the Vortex. It's a great piece of equipment. Um, as I've already dated myself, I'm not going to say we've done this for years, but the rescue industry has done tech rescue without the Vortex for years. Uh, and now it seems like you can't do a rope rescue without one, um, which, which concerns me. I know it, the context depends a lot. Uh, there's been some good discussion about, you know, if you're in a wilderness environment, by the time you make patient contact, the person's either dead or they have a broken ankle. And as long as you can protect them from the environmental hazards, they'll probably make it out alive indefinitely as long as you can preserve them. Um, so there's a, there's a long a long reflex time there in the urban setting like Philadelphia, you're never more than 10 minutes lights and sirens from a level one trauma center at any point in the city. So if we get, for example, a, I don't know, an ideal age confined space or a uh, worker hanging in, in fall protection um, that could go south quickly. 
we, we can operate in that, okay, if we make the rescue now, this person's still got a chance environment. Um, when if it was another half hour, hour, they're probably not going to make it. So, so it's important, I think, to keep simplicity at executing the, the mission uh, to the forefront of how we operate. Um, so again, Arizona Vortex, great piece of equipment, but I can easily pad an edge with some edge protection and make patient contact. Let's go back to that window washer hanging on his fall pro, um, which is an ideal H emergency. I can make patient contact and maybe get him off his uh, dorsal attachment there in you know two minutes if I got decent anchors. Um, and so the concern I see is kind of an over-reliance on technology now that we have it we feel we have to use it. Um, so where I, where I like to take that, if I'm training with the, with the Vortex or any other piece of equipment, like let's, you know, we can do all the fancy stuff we wanna do, but the last drill out of the day has to be a super simple one. So let's say, all right, we don't have a Vortex, we don't have anything, we've got uh, a couple of lines and some Edge Pro, let's affect the same rescue. Um, I know a lot of people like to, you know, train to that highest level, let's go rig a high line every time we go out, which is great, but I think that, kind of handicaps you with a bias towards complexity uh, that we need to be careful with in, in rescue. Um, the most effective rescues are, are the ones that get the casualty out fastest and safest to everybody. So as long as you're maintaining that benchmark, I think you're good. I just think uh, with all the brilliant new concepts that have come about in tech rescue and rope rescue specifically, kind of that uh, focus on simplicity is where I think we need to go, where I hope we'll go. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but. Uh, it's interesting though, cause like the Grimp Day competitions, we've been to a few mm -hmm. and usually 15 minutes to contact the patient and anywhere between 60 to 90 to finish the scenario. Otherwise okay. it's just zero, you're done. Pack it up and go to the next one. You get no points for it. And it's amazing how much more simpler the team that goes there trains. And there used to be a huge difference. I think our first Grimp was 13, 2013. Okay. A massive difference between how we train the Grimp team and how we train for everything else. Really? Those have slowly come together now because you start to realize that this fast, simple techniques is kind of what we need to do for everything. Right. And there's been a lot of tools that just get turfed aside from the toolbox in that case. Hmm. Okay. That's fascinating. That's a good perspective. So yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? It's, uh, you know, like you say, when you're out doing real rescues, those debriefs are, comp you know, 100% valuable because you get that information. The problem is, is how many times are you doing that high-end technical rescue where you have the opportunity right. to go back and debrief it without a lawyer or somebody in the room telling you what you can <laughs> and can't say. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, one of the things there that I guess kind of brings up, you know, where we're going, where we started from, you know, NFPA, do you feel that as a standards organization that limits or, you know, outlines what manufacturers have to do in order to have products pass the NFPA standard, do you feel that it's kept up with that technology? You talked about ropes being lighter, like Cordage Institute, are these standards organizations kept up with the technological curve that's happened or do you think they're lagging? I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, 
I think they've done a, a decent job of in each version that's, you know, subsequently come out trying to trying to stay stay relevant and stay up with the times. Uh, the question about handicapping manufacturers. So the ARS is an extremely small company. Um, and what the, one of the biggest handicaps for us is we just flat out can't afford it. Uh, I'll be blunt. I mean, like people, the, the magnet pulleys we have are not NFPA approved. Um, and what I tell people is they probably never will be, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, just the simple cost of trying to get there. I mean, what, what people also don't know when they read, when they read these standards is that there's a lot of fine print and a lot of certification prerequisites um, that go into just the companies themselves before they can even apply for an NFPA standard, uh, like ISO 9001 certification, all these kinds of things that every step in the process has to have. Um, and so as a, little, as a little fish in a big sea, um, that's a challenge for us. Uh, a big challenge for us. Um, so, you know, our, our stuff is is through Sigma tested to the exact same standard, and and you know we advertise that and and publish that. But it's just tough in our shoes to you know to try to bring a product to market when you're not a gazillionaire company uh, is is tough. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 the biggest challenge I see. I mean, I think the NFPA has done a decent job. I, I I know that those guys aren't aren't idiots either. They're they're um, staying on the on the pulse of things. I hope. Um, so I'm assuming that the uh, the newer standards will start reflecting some of the trends, especially towards smaller stuff, um, smaller hardware and ropes and things. Um, but the the bottom line is a very small company is it's just tough to tough to maintain it. So, and it's funny. Um... I've got one podcast lined up in the queue before this one comes out with you and it's with another manufacturer as well. And exact same thing. And he's saying, you know, I can do EN, I can do some of these other ones, but he goes to get NFPA. It's, he goes, I got to go to the bank with a business plan and get a loan. Like it's, it's yeah. that kind of cash. Yep. So, and some people say, Hey, that's a barrier to entry to get decent market and decent products on the market. Sure. I think people turn around and say, maybe we're missing some decent products because of that barrier to entry. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I get that. They don't want, you know, anybody just putting out whatever. And that, you know, is definitely the argument um, against it, but they got to meet somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I mean, it's just uh because, and what they also don't realize is, you know, you read that standard and you get something certified. It's not like it's, it's a one-time thing. It's every year inspections of your manufacturing facility and processes and, and, you know, a couple blood donations every six months. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's no joke. Um, I left when the anal swabs came out. I was like, you know what? <laughs> oh man, how badly do you want it? <laughs> so I guess that's a good lead-in. ARS, how did it start? Like, what what decided one day that hey, you know, right. being a firefighter and working on the side already isn't enough. I think I should form a manufacturing company. And, you know, do this for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I often joke that uh, I should have just. Uh, had my ideas and rolled over in bed and forgotten the whole thing, but here we are. <laughs> um, so ARS got started uh, in concept in 
2012, um, I went through, so Philadelphia, the way we do our special operations training, before you can set a big toe into one of the three firehouses, you have to be fully certified in every discipline. Uh, so that's all your typical stuff. Um, rope con, con space, vehicle machinery, trench, collapse, water, hazmat, all that good stuff. So, um, which I think is fantastic. It, it kind of keeps the bar set high. Um, but one of the components of that training module, it's one, they do one complete, you start, you, you know, they detail everybody into one class and you just push right through everything. But they spend an entire week on what they call fireground special operations, which is all your crazy fireground stuff, but a very heavy emphasis on firefighter rescue and rapid intervention team operations. And what they did well with that was humbling us. Um, you know, me in particular, uh, I remember thinking, okay, uh, all the things I thought I was capable of doing, I am not capable of doing. Um, the prime example of being the fire service teaches like, uh, you know, the typical 24 foot loop of webbing, hasty harness. Uh, you know, if you get a guy out, you tie a hasty harness on him. Well, guess what? That's flat out not happening uh, in a high stress low vis, um, low dexterity environment when your pulse is 200 and you think you're going to die. So they did a great job of making that apparent. Um, they put us through some scenarios where we were taxed physically, mentally, emotionally, to the extent that we're just kind of like, whatever, we're, we're kind of falling apart here. Um, which was great because they, you know, they, they gave us that dose of what we're going to be up against, um, in real life, which has, uh, tragically panned out in Philly on a lot of occasions. Um, but so the, that particular scenario, looking at, okay, how do we package a, a downed fireman for, uh, for rescue? The basic consensus was, well, the best you're going to do is a girth hitch. If you can get it around them and make a girth hitch, great. The problem is that, that regular tubular webbing is really annoying to work with, again, in that environment. When you, when you have thick gloves on, it's kind of limp and floppy. It's tough to, tough to feel. Um, there's too much of it for, you know, the typical loop they, they, they give you for a, a pacey harness. There's too much of it for, for what you're doing. So I said, all right, if the best we're going to do is a girth hitch, then we need a tool that we can girth hitch well with. Um, so I designed this device called the multi-loop rescue strap. It's based on webbing, um, but uh, it's, it's designed to have um, tactile reference points on it that you can feel with gloves on. It's got these big in loops. So basically I find my in loop, pass it around the guy, put it through the other end and girth hitch them and chuck them out the window or off the roof or lift them through the floor, whatever I got to do. Um, that tool is, is incredibly useful for horizontal movement, vertical movement, up steps, through the floor, everything. Um, and, and I started, I made one for myself. Uh, my wife can sew, uh, thankfully, and I put her to work on the, uh, the prototype uh, process and um yeah started with started with that and and made a couple i was like this is kind of cool some people saw it and wanted it and uh so i i decided to go ahead and um have some of those made and and you know created ars to as an llc to kind of you know protect myself and set up the insurance so nobody kills themselves when they're throwing their buddy off the roof <laughs> with my uh tool so that got started in 2016 and uh started with that tool then then made some um accessories for it so uh, i have a, a, a bag for it that's kind of unique that closes magnetically so you can pack the strap in this little bout this little pouch 
you keep one of the end loops out and there's a magnetic closure that enables, um, it keeps it all locked in there, but then it's just one pull and you're in service, you're not digging through a pocket. Um, that same pouch can be, there's a tactical version that can be mounted on a plate carrier. So it's, um, you get the same benefits for a high stress fire ground operation that you get in a tactical setting if you have a down officer or an active shooter where you need to move a lot of people fast. Um, it's a very small compact tool. So, so that kind of got things started there. Um, then uh, let's see, uh, the next product that we started working on is a, is a rope bag. Uh, so kind of moving from uh, firefighter rescue tech uh, to, to more some tech rescue stuff, I started working on this bag called the breakout rope bag. Basically, rope bags work well out of the top. Sometimes people fight with the, the bottom of the bag, either trying to feed the rope through the, the grommet that's there or things like that. And they just don't really work well. Um, there's a couple other designs out there on the market that, that give you bottom bag access, but not, not enough of it. So I came up with a bag that basically it's a true double-ended rope bag. So you can work out of the top end like you would your typical rope bag. The bottom end has an end cap on it that, that makes it really secure. There's no uh, fear of accidentally deploying the rope when you don't want to. But if you take that cap off, you get another fully opening drawstring in like you would the top of the bag. So I can work clearly out of both ends. Um, and that gives me all kinds of benefits. I mean, I can rig with an end for extended anchor and work with the other. I can do, if it's a small job, main and safety, or, uh, you know, for our um, twin tension people, you can do twin tension out of it, <laughs> both ends, depending on what you're doing. Um, for confined space, if you're trying to put, you know, every entrance got to have a retrieval line, depending on the scenario. So instead of three rope bags, I can do two rescuers out of each bag, depending on my space and everything. Uh, and then that same bag splits open all the way down the middle. So I'm not stuck with a rope bag in the middle of my system if I do work out of both ends. So it's just, it's, it's unlimited options. I can, it can be just a boring old rope bag if I want to and work out of the top, or it can be uh, all kinds of uh, neat stuff depending on the scenario. Um, with that also, uh, jumping back to, to my climbing background, I had Sterling make me a, a custom bicolor static rope. So um, the tracer pattern changes halfway. One end's black, one end's usually orange, depending on the color. Um, climbers will use them for, for ages for uh, finding the midpoint to do double rope repels. And I thought, well, shoot, if I can work out of both ends of my bag, then I want to be able to tell the ends apart so that if I'm doing one thing with the other, I can, I can differentiate the two. Um, so uh, with this bag, and you put a rope with it that's bicolor, now you've got the world's your oyster and you can do all kinds of cool stuff. So at the end of the day, it's still the yellow rope or the blue rope. You just want it to be one rope. But again, if, if you're rigging with one end and working with the other or doing two safety lines out of one bag for confined space or something, you can tell them apart. So, um, yeah, it gives you, gives you a bunch of options there. That's um, interesting when you mentioned that about the climbing rope. I spent some time climbing. And you're right, you know, you've got these directional indicators at the halfway point in the rope or a different color or whatever in order to identify your midpoint and the ends of the rope and yet it's never caught on in the fire service and right. technical rescue. But most of the ropes we take over to grip, we've rope marked okay. one and a two and rope marked the center so that we know really? where the ends are and where the middle is. And it'd be okay. interesting, you know, to have manufacturers maybe look at that a little more. Yeah. We got to get you on some bicolor rope then. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's simple. So, um, and I'm more into it for the, Obviously, you do find the midpoint, but just being able to differentiate between the two ends, 
you know, gives you a lot of options there. Um, well, it's interesting too with the rope bag. There's a lot of teams for technical rescue, Europe particularly. They have to have a knot in the end of their be- their rope, and they have to make sure that's in there before they actually deploy. Hmm. Right. Um, our our search and rescue teams in British Columbia have to have the knot and have it clipped off. Okay. Well, there's a lot of teams out there outside of the fire service that must have access to the end of that rope by their policies and procedures so huh. that they know that the other end of that rope is closed loop, as a lot of them call it. So they know okay. it's not disappearing through the system on them. Gotcha. So that's really interesting that you've come up with a thought process of that long before. I mean, BC Search and Rescue only changed over three or four years ago. Europe's been doing it for a while, but uh, okay. it's interesting that you came up with that long before that came out. No, uh, well, I was just poking around here. I mean, one of the things you can do is run that, that tail out. Um, I've actually got a, a video shoot coming up. So one of the unique things that you can do with this bag is repel with the bag on your back and open up the bottom of the bag enough that you can just feed the rope out as you repel. And why would I want to do that? The big reason would be if I'm in like a, a uh, more of a wilderness, low angle environment where I can't, if I throw my rope, it's going to go 15 feet and get stuck in a bush. So if I'm trying to make patient contact, that first guy down, instead of having to chuck my rope through the, the, the nonsense, he can sit there and feed the rope out as he works his way down and thread the needle through all the obstacles. Uh, but the big key is you don't want to repel off the end of your rope. So you can run it back out of the top and either clip it on your harness or clip it on your bag, um, on the bag itself, so that you know that you're never going to accidentally do that. So. Well, and there's that whole thing where even repelling to a patient in the fire service, if you throw them a rope, nine times out of 10, they grab it. Exactly. Which exactly. becomes problematic for you. <laughs> sure. Indeed. Um, so, you started with like, the rescue strap into the rope bag, and where did it develop from there? So from there, I was kind of poking on two things. So one more rope bag development I'll hit. That bag is good for technical rescue. Uh, some of its features, it's got drawstrings on it, things like that. A lot of fine motor skill stuff that works in tech rescue most of the time, um, but not for the fire ground. And I wanted to uh, have the same benefits of that rope bag in a fire ground applicable bag. So I took the bag and sort of redesigned it. I had some help from one of the, uh, uh, some firemen I really respect in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, one of the rescue companies there, um, kicking the ideas back and forth. but. Um, I made another version of that bag. Uh, I call it the FSO bag, the Fireground Special Operations Rope Bag, um, where it just has two ends on it. It's a shoulder strap instead of a backpack. Uh, and the, the ends are marked um, for an anchor end or a, a, a life end, for depending on what you're doing. So you can use the bag for wide area search, for firefighter rescue. Um, but I really set it up to kind of do rooftop rescue operations and kind of like the FDNY style rope operation um, where you're just lowering a guy over and they're making a grab Uh, so the way the bag deploys you know I can with a three-man team my anchor guy can just deploy the one end and go find an anchor my rescuer and and spotter or officer can go get set up on the end and then they meet in the middle and you can get a guy over the edge in in two minutes one minute depending on what you're doing Um, and uh, that bag's gone quite a bit FDNY has done a good job the last couple of months of making a couple of those grabs so I've gotten a lot of phone calls about that one. Um, but, uh, but so we make that bag and some kits to go with it, both a, a roof kit and then we make a uh, firefighter rescue and search kit, both for that wide area search and, and some rescue stuff. But, um, but I started playing with this other weird idea 
Uh, again, this was a, a basement thing. I was, I don't know, probably six years ago, I was in my basement doing some rope nerd stuff, just doing some rigging. And I needed a single pulley and all I had left was a double. And I thought, gee, well, I really wish this thing would split apart. And I would have two singles. And uh, I started poking at the idea and I said, oh, I wonder how I could make that happen. Um, and one of the things I thought, I was like, well, I'm no machine shop expert. I'm no uh, engineer. I thought, what if I just, you know, just this proof of concept, maybe I can bang out some really, really rough prototypes. Um, and to make them lock together, I'll just make it magnetic so that, it, you know, I can just stick them together and pull them apart. And we'll see what happens. So I made them. Um, and we're talking, I mean, it's a, it's a ghetto prototype. <laughs> Whoever was one, I just went to the hardware store and bought some pulleys and broke them apart to get the sheaves out and, and got some aluminum and bent it in a vise. And, uh, that's the fun, that's the fun stuff for anybody who gets to do this prototyping stuff. That's where the, that's where the excitement comes. But anyway, so made this really rudimentary prototype. And, and the more I was looking at it, I thought, wait a second, these magnets are actually really useful because now you have these, these two sheaves, these two halves. And when you put them on a carabiner as they're loaded, depending on what side's loaded, if you're using it as a double or whatever, the, the two can kind of move together and find their happy place. So with, you know, because they're not fixed or locked together, it kind of reduces the amount of force that would go on any type of, of attachment point. Um, so I, I went, I went to a machine shop and said, make me something like this. And that went through geez, four or five, uh, different versions. And when I finally got to something that was workable, I said, this is either the coolest thing in the world or the stupidest thing I've ever thought of. Um, so I farmed those out to a couple people across the industry that I trust. I said, look, I want your no BS opinion. Like, tell me to take a hike and pound sand or is this worth, worth uh, pursuing? And sure enough, people kept saying, no, this is pretty cool. You ought to give this a shot. And uh, yeah, so I guess um, after all that R&D and, and, you know, prototyping and, and finding good manufacturers to work with and everything, uh, yeah, about a year ago, the Magnapulleys officially came out. So um, right now they are a, so it's a, it's a double sheaf pulley that splits apart into two singles. It's a very simple concept. Um, the, uh, right now they're only available up to uh, 11 mil, 7 sixteenths. Um, I'm hoping to have the half inch rope compatible prototype in hand in the next month or so. Um, and again, as a very small company, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just see, I'm, I'm having that prototype made. I'll shop that around a little bit. And if, if customers want it, we'll do it. If not, then I'll stick with the small guy. Um, but, uh, I'm not going to go make a bazillion of them if, if no one wants them, but, um, uh, but the magnet pulleys are cool. So basically what they give you, and I'll tell people this, if I can park my rescue truck two feet from my job, I'm using omni blocks myself. I mean, you can't, you can't beat them. Um, but what the magnet pulleys do, it's a couple things. So one, if you're going to put a pulley on your harness as like a piece of personal kit, uh, a magnet pulley, you always have a double or two singles with you at all times. So, you're, you know, any of us who've done rescues, it's, it's so who's got a single? I need a double over here. Who's, and you're going through your rigging bag and whatever. So this pulley gives you incredible flexibility as a piece of personal kit. as kind of a get out of jail free card. If you always keep a, a little bit of kit on your harness to help you out in the jam, you just, I mean, you can't beat the flexibility of them. Uh, in a small package, you get a lot of options. And if you take that concept then to units or teams that are doing um, 
either you know wilderness medicine or, or some austere rescue stuff, a lot of military units, if you want to minimize your kit as much as possible and get the most bang for your, your buck from a weight perspective and an efficiency perspective, same deal. I take two of these pulleys and I've got either two doubles, a double and two singles or four singles. Two sets of these and I can build just about any mechanical advantage system I need to. Um, I mean, sure, you can get into some crazy high, high weird stuff, um, but, but you can do a heck of a lot with a very small package. Um, and that's who's honestly like the military and tactical units have been jumping all over. That's why I sell the most to, um, and, uh, because it's, you can do so much with such a little kit. Um, so yeah. And they stick the metal stuff. So if you work on ships or climb towers, it's pretty cool to just pop the pulley on the, on the wall next to you. <laughs> you don't have to worry so, about dropping it then. Exactly. Exactly. Now there's, you, you can't make them swivel. Because they have to split apart. Believe me, I've tried. If if someone knows how to make them swivel, give me a call. We'll we'll talk, and uh, I'll pay you well. But um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, like, like I said, I'll, they're they're still they come up being a basic pulley, but the flexibility you get is is pretty cool. Right on. Uh, a couple questions with uh, that, or a couple comments. There was a video you had out. Is that with the FSO bag? Uh, what what happened in the video? Yeah, There's a lot of videos. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just showing like having a firefighter with the anchor and the yes. five end, all that. So that's available. People can take a look at that if they're yes, sir. visual of what we're talking about right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That bag, um, it's just so easy to, to deploy. There's a bunch of, bunch of videos on my website, AndersonRescue.com or on the YouTube channel. And I'm constantly putting stuff up on Instagram and Facebook and things. So right on. And then the, uh, the mag police, they were in the T rescue magazine, weren't they? They were, yeah, they were, they were on uh, the cover there, um, both of uh, Tech Rescue and Wilderness Search and Rescue, one of those two. They, they're a great, great group of guys. I've, uh, they've been real helpful to me with advertising, and, and uh, yeah, they're just a good, good outfit. So, Right on. So, yeah, people are, you know, besides the website, if people are looking for what this looks like in action and whatnot, there's a couple places Correct. they can take a look at. Correct. So... Next question, you don't have to answer it, but just curious. I mean, I obviously run a business and there's a lot of things I've done where at the end you go, well, that was a dumb idea or, <laughs> you know, just didn't bother starting. Sure. You had setbacks, you don't have to get into specifics where you build a product and just said, nah, that's not going to work. Or have you always managed to, to get out the other side, make the tweaks with it and do the prototyping and get in people's hands? That's a great question. Um, so far, uh, the, most of the products have worked out. It's been a lot of work. Um, one of the interesting things, my, the, the multi-loop rescue strap, I've been trying to get it to float for five years, <laughs> pretty much since it came out. Um, and it's proven much more difficult than I anticipated. Tried all kinds of different things I won't go into. We got some others in the pipeline here that I'm optimistic about, and some, we're messing with some new fibers and stuff that um, – that react differently to water. But uh, yeah, I've kind of, most of these products, the, the Magna Pulleys was the, the scary one because it was a lot of money for R and D. Um, I mean, just, just making one off anything at a machine shop is not a cheap endeavor. So, and I was really pretty skeptical myself and I was intentionally skeptical. I don't, you know, I, I, I hate gimmicks more than the next guy. And I really don't want any of my stuff to be that way. I want it to be stuff that actually the end user can really get excited about that that makes their job easier and, and hopefully brings more people home. 
So, um, but that one, that one made me nervous. Cause again, I, 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 when I was playing with it, it was either this is the coolest thing in the world or this is the stupidest thing. And this is just going to be a really expensive pile of paperweights when I'm done. Um, but, uh, but the biggest problem now is, is just, uh, you know, trying to, trying to grow the company and, and balance, um, balance the, uh, the business end with the, the R and D end in an ideal world. I'd like to just sit in a little hole and design gear and, um, not deal with the rest of it, but, uh, but we're not quite there yet. So, uh, hopefully soon, but, um, but yeah, most of the, most of the products have kind of come out okay on the other end. There's a bunch more I'd like to get to that are in the secret little black book. Uh, but, uh, we'll see, we'll see. So <clears throat> without giving away too much, the secret little black book, have you got a date for another product release or, you know, is something that's in the pipeline right now? You don't have to tell me what it is, obviously. There's some R and D going on. Um, some different, uh, different products we're working on. Most of it, like I said, the, uh, the half inch version of the Magna Pulleys is probably the next kind of new release. Uh, the focus is last year or two has been kind of getting the stuff we have out there. Um, as a, you know, again, being a newer, newer kid on the block, just trying to, um, I put a lot of effort up front into a lot of these products and getting them out there. And now I got to put more effort into letting people know we exist. So, um, so hopefully that's, uh, that's coming, but yeah, there's some, there's some stuff happening. We'll see. Right on. <laughs> what, um, do you have a favorite? Do you have something that you've built that's like, Hey, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I'd still do this particular sure. thing. Sure. Uh, well, give me one. Second. They're all my designs. So they're kind of all my babies. Um, but, uh, the rescue strap as as kind of simple as it is, was it's been really fun about that tool. And whenever I do demos on that, I tell people, I'm saying, listen, I, I'm, I came up with maybe 20% of what I'm going to show you. Um, cause we get emails and phone calls from firefighters and, and operators around, you know, around the world really who have used it and said, Oh, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And people just keep coming up with really cool ways to use that tool. And subsequently, that tool is the one that's used the most for, for real rescues. Um, we've had, I mean, that's been used, you know, we lost count a long time ago on actual uh, people who were rescued with that tool. Um, it's been used in real world firefighter rescues um, and performed the way that we hoped it would. So the, the, the uh, you know, the, the satisfaction level with that product has been huge. The return on it has been, has been huge. Just having people use it and having it work um, makes a lot of the, the, the work, well, it makes it worth it. I mean, uh, you know, it's one thing to make a product. It's another thing to, to, to get, you know, the feedback from customers who've had to use it in really bad situations and have them be so successful with it that they then stopped and then emailed me to tell me about it. Because you think about all the, you know, firefighters do rescue work all the time. I'm not emailing Hearst every time I do an extrication, although I like their uh, equipment a lot. But, um, but it's just it's just been nice to see how that product has has worked as we wanted it to. So that's um, awesome. That's that's awesome feedback too. Like as a as an owner of a company that's putting something out, that's got to be great. It is. It is. And just the, again, the cool stuff. We we had a guy. It was a couple like about an hour outside of Philly sent me this video a year or two ago. It was like, Hey, check this out. Using it to get a down fireman up steps, which, you know, we all know is like a, a total nightmare scenario of a fireman trapped in the basement. And he came up with this technique that's just stupid, simple. And it just are all our heads exploded. And now it's, you know, this one of the standard things we teach and, 
you know, it's, it's just, it's great to see that kind of stuff. And we didn't come up with it. Somebody else did. So right on. So what's next for Tim and ARS? Like, wow. If there is one question in the world right now, it's, I mean, it's 2020, so who knows, but, uh, my goal in 2020, honestly, was to answer that question and 2020 blew up. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, we want to keep, we want to keep the mission going. I mean, our mission is, is, is pretty simple. Um, we want products that work in reality. Uh, it's great for stuff to work on the training grounds, great for, for equipment to work on the, in the firehouse on drill night. We want it to work when nothing is working when everything is going wrong. Um, and if we can continue to make gear uh, that serves that purpose or gear that is very efficient. So it's either, my stuff is either based on, on extreme stress and working in those environments or extreme efficiency. Whereas instead of four tools that do one thing, I've got one tool that does four things. So if we can keep making gear that meets those two criteria, I'll be a very happy camper. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's our goal is to keep doing that. I mean, there's a lot of um, any small business, especially one in our situation that's kind of in that awkward medium size going from small to medium and needs to make some big, big leaps and bounds here. Um, you know, for anyone who's ever been there, it's a, a tough place to be uh, with a lot of unknowns and a lot of steps of faith you got to take. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of our, our goal is to keep, keep doing what we're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's the mission. So, right on. Just focus. Uh, is there anything else you want to add? No, just uh, grateful for the opportunity. Um, yeah, I've your your podcast has some solid stuff on it, so I'm I'm very humbled to be here. <laughs> but uh, um, but but yeah, no, we're. Uh, um, if any of your listeners have any questions, please please contact us, and and, and if you have any problems, you need solving. So. How can they contact you? What, you? what have you got there for social Yeah, so uh, AndersonRescue.com is the website. Um, similarly, Anderson Rescue Solutions is the Facebook and Instagram. Uh, just info at AndersonRescue.com is the good email address. And um, yeah, let us know how we can help you or if you want to learn more about our stuff, we'd be, be thrilled to do so. Right on. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.